This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. The Picts, according to Bede, writing in the 8th century, were one of four peoples of Britain, along with the Scots, the Anglo-Saxons and the Britons. In the 10th century, the last three still existed, but the Picts didn't. They left stone monuments carved with astonishing artistry and intricacy, and other peoples wrote about them. But where was Pictland? What language did the Picts speak? And why did they disappear as a distinct group? As we mark our 20th season, we're... We're discussing this before an audience of students, many of them studying the subject, and some, it may transpire, with Pictish ancestors. With us here in the Memorial Chapel at the University of Glasgow to discuss the Picts are Catherine Forsyth, reader in the Department of Celtic and Gaelic at the University of Glasgow, Alex Wolfe, senior lecturer in Dark Age Studies at the University of St Andrews, and Gordon Noble, reader in Archaeology at the University of Aberdeen. And afterwards, we'll be taking questions from our audience, which you can hear in our podcast and on our website. Now, business as usual. Catherine, Catherine Forsyth. The Romans were the first to mention the pigs. What did they say about them? The, the first mention comes in a, 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 a poem praising uh, the emperor and comparing his achievements to, uh, to Julius Caesar. So the first mention is in 297, but it's a sort of retrospective one. Um, and they... We have a number of references to the Picts, sometimes just the name, but they are presented as the sort of iconic enemies of Rome. They are the enemy, and they are presented as bloodthirsty savages who uh, run around without clothing and covered in tattoos. And so it's a very uh, sort of stereotyped image of this hostile barbarian living in the north. It was the Romans who called them Picti, isn't it, the painted ones? Well, the word on the face of it is a Latin word meaning painted people. There is a possibility that it could be a native word. There is a Celtic word, Picti, and that's uh, the Pictones are a tribe in Gaul. That's where we get Poitiers and Poitou from. But it is probably more likely that it is just, as it seems, the, the Roman word. And this notion that they were, that they were painted people or, or tattooed comes through again and again, yeah. We, have, we know that Constantine, from his base in York, mm. who was just about to become emperor, fought one of his great battles against the Picts. That gives them an authority, doesn't it? I mean, he was a great warrior emperor. Yes. And he came all that far north, beyond the Antonine Wall, right up yes. there to fight these people, the Picts. What, does yes. he, what do you make of that? Well, I think... I think, yes, they, are, they, are, they were perceived as a very important enemy, and we have a, a very different kind of evidence from, uh, from archaeology. There's a wonderful little dice box that was used for playing games. It comes from the empire, from the frontier near Cologne, and it's encarved with an inscription that says, the enemy is defeated, the Picts are defeated, uh, uh, play in safety. So within the Ar Roman army, the Picts are uh, an iconic enemy. But the reference to Constantine is interesting because they refer to them as the Caledonians and other Picts. So this kind of suggests that Picts is an umbrella term that's being used loosely to cover a range of 
tribal groups in the north of Britain at the time. And you saw that an ancestor of the Greeks, Calgarchus, came out with the great phrase, Tacitus, the Romans created a desert and called it peace. Yes, well, this is really interesting because in Tacitus' time, so Tacitus is writing about um, Roman military incursions into the north of Scotland in the 80s AD, and this comes to a head at this famous battle of Mons Graupius, and the, the leader there is Calgarchus. But to Tacitus, he doesn't use the word Picts. This is about six or seven generations before the first use of the word Picts. He calls them Britons, so the Britons of Caledonia, and that's very important. But for Tacitus, he has a positive view of the Picts. They are the kind of noble, heroic savages, untainted by the decadence of civilization. And that's, I think that's really important because they, there's a shift from this kind of grudging regard for these heroes, the, the last of the free, as Tacitus calls them. But over the centuries, that hardens because the Picts become distinguished from the Britons to the south. In Tacitus's time, they're all Britons. Alex, can we, can we go on to... Can we take that forward, Alex, Wolf, to the distinction? The Romans are making distinctions between the Picts and other Britons. We're coming to beat in a minute with the four... four or peoples of this, of this island, as it were. But what were the Romans making any distinctions, saying the Picts were like X and the Gauls were like Y, and so on and so forth? Well, I think, uh, you know, as, as Catherine was hinting at at the end of what she just said, what happens in the period of Roman occupation is that the Romans, or the Britons within the frontier, gradually become Romans. They become provincial citizens. And the name Britain begets attached to them, so we need to have some other word to describe the Britons who are not yet conquered. Uh, and perhaps because from very earliest times, from the time of Caesar's invasion, the stereotyped identity of the Britons was that they were painted. Presumably the civilised ones are no longer painted. So they're saying, we're not the painted Britons. The painted ones are up there, north of the wall. And so it's because the Britons become two different groups of people, a Roman provincial nation, who ultimately become the Welsh and so on, and... Uh, an, an unconquered group who continue in the trajectory of barbarism. So that wall at Hadrian's Wall, south of Hadrian's Wall, they became Romanised, and north, particularly north of the Antonine Wall, a few, <coughs> a few uh, hundred or so miles north of that, they, they stayed the same, developed in their own way? They, they developed in their own way, which was largely being more conservative, but not completely unchanging. And, and, and as you say, that the area between Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall is a kind of grey area, ultimately the people south of the Antonine Wall managed to, to win the right to be called Britons, but they're, they're clearly from archaeology and so on, they're not nearly as Romanised. But within Britain itself, even within the province of Britain, the levels of Romanisation varied enormously. And we, we might imagine, although here it has to be speculation, that for people living in the southeast, where there were lots of villas and fully developed towns, perhaps even people in Yorkshire might have been thought of as a bit Pictish. Uh, but why? Everyone, because they were less civilised, they were less like the Romans. They did. did you, you associated them with Kent? You mean people compared with Kent, the southeast people in Yorkshire were Pictish? Well, I think it, being Pictish is a, in this period is about being less Roman. I see. So, if you, so it's a, is it a, a term of um, abuse almost? I, th I think it probably is a pejorative term of, of, of the uncivilised, and it's a, it's a, a, and it's a, it's a loose generalised term, like redskin, for example, for Native Americans. It's not a specific tribal term. As Catherine said, we have the Caledones and the Vaturiones and other Pictish tribes, the Maiatai, still existing. And those are the political units in the late Roman world, north of the wall. But they're all Picti because they all still paint their bodies and they, they don't um, 
go to the Senate House to decide things in the way that Romano British people in Silchester or Sirencester or St Albans do. Yeah, you know, let's try to concentrate that in, in a location quite soon. What's the difficulty of studying the pics without any written records? The difficulty of studying them without written records, you mean without written records from the pics. We know mostly about them from external view, first the Romans, subsequently the Irish and the English from about the time of Bede. Uh, one of the problems is knowing when this term seems to become firmer. In the last century or so before the Picts disappear, there's definitely a sense in our Irish and English sources that there was a Pictish kingdom, that there were kings of the Picts. Uh, and it stopped being that loose terminology. But we're still always looking at it from outside. We don't know whether even at that late period, the people who we call Picts would have used that word themselves, even when they were writing in Latin. They probably did. And that's the likely thing, is that they adopt that terminology perhaps in the, in the 7th century uh, when they become Christian and they start engaging with classical material. They may, they may think, oh yes, that's us, we're the Picts. There have been enormous leap forwards in Pictish studies in the last 20 years. And more money has been put into it, I presume, and more stuff, amazing stuff has been found. Yes, I mean, it's a combination of things. There's been an enormous amount of archaeological work which is still yeah. going on, and Gordon is one of the leading people. Come into into Gordon in a second. <laughs> but, um, but also, I think one of the things that happened, began to happen in the, in the 1990s was that a lot of the textual evidence that does survive was reviewed with a much more critical eye. Uh, for a long time, this period of Scottish history was still following the the sort of template of narrative that had been established in the late medieval or early modern period by chroniclers like um, John of Forden um, or Barber and, and, not, um, and Bauer and people like that who wrote these big histories of Scotland in the late 14th, 15th century. The sort of people who were the source for Hollinshed, who in turn was the source for Shakespeare. And I think by and large, people accepted that as the basic narrative and simply modified it but then in the 1990s we began to get people going back and really say well let's more or less completely ignore the late material and look at exactly contemporary material try and tie it in with new thoughts about ethnicity and the ancient <coughs> world that have come more generally and so on so I think this, this source criticism approach changed things from a historical perspective Gordon Noble, let's just bring in Bede at this moment, our father of British history, one of the world's great historians, and he was very clear about it, wasn't he? So let's start Bede about 700, 715, what he said about the Picts. Well, Bede's writing in Northumbria, so one of the southern neighbours of the Picts, um, and he, as you say, said at the start, has this very f famous statement that there's four peoples of Britain uh, and five, five languages with Latin uniting uh, th these people. Uh, and then he goes on to have this fantastic uh, um, account of the origin myth of the Picts, um, saying that they come from Scythia, you know, kind of Eastern Europe, Central Eurasia. Uh, and they sail all the way to Ireland initially, um, but, you know, Ireland's full up. Uh, so the Irish say, you know, why don't you head over to the next island, Britain, um, and, and, and settle there. Um, but they don't have any wives, so they... Um, ask the Irish for, for wives, and the Irish give them wives, um, and uh, the Irish say that, you know, if uh, there's ever a doubt in the uh, succession of the uh, Pictish royal line, then you should favour the uh, uh, maternal line. This is where we get the idea that the uh, Picts were, uh, had matrilineal uh, do you succession. Credence, do you give credence to any of that? Um, I, no. no, no. Right. It's, so, um, nice to hear it's a fantastical <laughs> origin myth. 
uh, all the peoples have similar myths. You know, the, the Scots but, uh, have similar myths about coming from Scythia as well. So, But Bede seems very sure, is, we, we have to respect him, although, of course, mm. we have to qual- qualify him as well. But he's very sure of his ground, four peoples. He's putting them on the same plane as the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons and so on. So they were important to him then. I'm trying to assess where they were. So we're talking about just after 700, and this is an important group of people. Certainly. Um, you know, certainly by the 8th century, we, we have a very clear evidence that there is a Pictish over-kingship. Um, and he, he is, he's, he's um, obviously in this northern kingdom. He has good knowledge of what's going on uh, to, to the north. And he's also aware that in the uh, 7th century, there's a period when the Anglo-Saxons and Northumbrians have an uh, over-kingship over, of the Picts. So he's aware of more recent history, and obviously that uh, over-kingship ends in 685 with the Battle of Nectansmere. Um, so he's very aware of, of recent history, uh, but he also looks back into deeper history as well. So he says, by tradition, this is, you know, picks come from Scythia and the like. So he's trying to look at the earlier origins of, of this, uh, Gens, this, this people uh, of the picks. Uh, Alex sort of scattered the picks across the island a few minutes ago and mm-hmm. had them in Yorkshire, had them all. Uh, I think we can... We can be a bit the, more localised. The Pictish in Yorkshire. Yeah, Pictish. No, he was Pictish. I'm, I'm slightly... But Gordon, where were they? Where were they geographically? Can you just tell our listeners where the Picts, as far as you know, where they were? <laughs> well, obviously, you know, um, uh, it's, it's probably a territory that changed over time. Uh, Athamnan, who's writing The Life of Columba, says that Picts occupy the area east of uh, Drumalban, the, the ridge of Britain. Um, so somewhere east of, of the highlands of, of Scotland. So we're talking about Inverness, Aberdeen, up that area. Yeah, Great, the, great Glen, Colombo yeah. goes up the Great Glen, he meets yeah. uh, uh, Pictish King, uh, Brithai, um, at uh, the head of, head of Loch Ness, so in that area. Uh, Bede talks about them occupying the area north of the Forth, so, so north of you know, modern-day Edinburgh. Um, and um, in the Pictish King lists, uh, there's this fantastic, another origin myth, uh, again, fantastical, um, talks about Cruthni, the father of the Picts, and he has seven sons. And they have really suspicious names like Fief for Fife and Kate for Caithness. And it basically, it's a claim to territory. So again, it, it suggests that they're occupying an area from Fife up to Caithness, possibly the Northern Isles. Uh, so uh, uh, Adovnan talks about... Uh, um, Brithai being uh, over king of, of the Orkneys. So at times the Northern Isles, possibly the Western Isles, uh, may have been part of that territory. So it's, worth, it's as a generalisation, and, and, and you're, you're quite rightly not putting up with generalisations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's absolutely. But they're in the far north of Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and yet it seems far away, but yet they still uh, they have the power to impose themselves on Bede, Constantine's got to go and, and fight them, and then we're going to come to one of the great battles of the early Middle Ages, a defining battle up there. Catherine Passat, um, did they become Christianized? Because, as Gordon said, there were five languages, four, and then Latin. Certainly, very, very much so. And I, I'm, I'm conscious we're sitting here at the University Chapel and we have these beautiful stained glass windows of Ninian and Columba, the two saints who, in Bede's account, are presented as the evangelists of the pits. And uh, as Alex said, you know, many of the sort of historical paradigms that we've been working with up until very recently are shaped by that narrative of the great men, the heroic missionaries. But in fact, if we look at the contemporary evidence, it's uh, a much more diffuse and multifaceted process. And it seems that the Picts 
um, are first exposed to Christianity through their contact with the Roman Empire. We were talking earlier about the hostile contact, but in fact we can see in the archaeology a lot of interaction between the people to the north of the frontier and the Roman world. And so Christianity spreads north through contacts like that. Um, just as it did to Ireland beyond the imperial frontier. And we have a reference, St. Patrick, in the 5th century, writes a letter to the British king, Coroticus, to complain about his slave raiding in Ireland in company with apostate Picts, implying that they're already Christian Picts who have reneged on their faith. And so we have evidence of Christianity in, in, in Pictland from the 5th century onwards. But where does I does I own a figure in any significant way? There, I mean, it's I, up there. I, I, on... I own a, is 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 very important. Yes. I, I so own, the Celt, own... we have the Celtic as well as coming out from the south. We have the Celtic influence emanating from Iona. Yes. So we have a strand that's coming up through this sort of British Romano-British influence, but also coming in from the west in the Gallic world. So Iona, um, off the coast of Mull, is at the at the sort of northern, or sorry, it's just to the south of Pictland. So Pictland is from Skye up the west coast and so on. And so we have references to Columba coming and preaching to the tribes of the Tay, but he doesn't, the sources don't say that he converted them. So it's unclear whether... He has a competition with the local magicians to see he, who can change the he, weather. He does, he does, but it doesn't... <laughs> but, yes, and, and, and also and a, a, run in, a run in with the Loch Ness Monster <laughs> as well. Yes, no, the, these are great stories. They're retrospective stories, uh, but none of them say that he converted anybody. So, that, that, you know, it's possible to read these stories that, these, that, that the Picts are already Christian and he's coming and preaching to them. But certainly there's a very, very strong influence coming from the Gaelic-speaking West and from Ireland, mediated through Iona, but not just Iona, other uh, churches as well. Now we come, thank you very much. Mm. Now I think we come to, you tell me, we come to the great moment in, in Pict-ish history and a great moment in British history, the Battle of Nectansmere in 685, one of the greatest battles in this island of the Middle Ages when Egfrith, King Northumbria, who, who was on course to unite almost the whole country because Northumbria had either conquered other places in the or he got allegiance or he's got his placemen there. And for some reason or other, he went far north to, to meet the Picts. And completely unexpectedly, after winning battles for 30 years... He was not only defeated but killed, and so were his top henchmen in Nectansmere, and that changed everything. Can you say that more elaborately than I did, please, um, with more scholarship? I, <laughs> I'll try. Um, yes, I mean, it is one of the defining battles of British history, and what Bede says, who, who was actually about 12 years old when it happened, is that from that time, the strength and power of the English ebbed away. And 100 years later, the Welsh author of the Historia Britonum, the history of the Britons, chose to end his history at that point because he saw that as the, the end of history in a sort of rather Francis Fukuyama way. <laughs> but what had seemed in the 6th and 7th centuries to be the, the unstoppable spread of the English, as, as you said. Based in Northumbria. Based, based in Northumbria, but also in, on other frontiers as well, the West Saxons heading into the southwest and the Mercians into Wales. It seemed like the whole of Britain, would, it was just a matter of time. But in 685, it stopped and it seems to be that uh, Edrith had, had previously uh, invaded Pictland at the beginning of his reign, and that coincides with a change of kingship there. And the Pictish king, another Breathe, not the same one that um, uh, Gordon was referring to, uh, becomes rather confusing. There's a few Pictish names, and they get repeated. But uh, uh, this uh, Breathe, who was Edrith's cousin, may well have actually been put on the throne 
by Edgeworth. He may have been an exiled prince or one of a number of competitors and was probably initially, for those first 10 years of, of Edgeworth's reign, on message as one of his placemen, as, as I think you used the phrase. Uh, but something happens, and it's what seems to be happening is we see a number of references in the run-up to Nechtensmere that uh, Bride is beginning to spread his wings. So in 682, we're told that he deleted the Orkneys, whatever that means. But presumably it them out, it means, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Presumably it means it wasn't nice to be an Orcadian yeah. in 682. <laughs> um, and similarly, he seems to uh, expand in other frontiers, and that seems to worry Edgefrith. Edgefrith goes north, expecting, presumably, that Bride will kowtow, but it doesn't happen. At some place, somewhere in the north of Scotland, his well, army is well, wiped out. Sorry, interrupt you. Where is Nectonsmere? Where is Nectonsmere? Um, the, the, the name Nectonsmere, the, the English name that survives, is actually not, doesn't appear until quite late. The Irish chronicles call the battle the Battle of Dune Necton, the fort of Necton rather than the lake of Necton. So where is it? Well, there are two places in Scotland that have that name today. One of them is Dunnachan in Angus. And the other is a place. For those who don't know their Scottish history, you better tell people where Angus is. Angus is the, just the area just north of Dundee. Sort of, it's That's about fine. halfway between Dundee and Aberdeen, but inland a bit. Right. For those people who don't know Scottish geography, uh, the other place is a place called Dunachton, which is in Upper Speyside, quite close to Aviemore, which people have probably heard of, the skiing resort. Uh, both have Pictish stones near them. Uh, both have locks near them, which may be the mere. So we can't be certain which, but it's one of those two, almost certainly. Can I just ask you probably an impossible question? And Gordon, you might want to take it. How come that this relatively small number of people from that, they were known to be very powerful, enough evidence that they were powerful warriors, Constantine had to go in. How come that they took on this man who had never lost a battle in 30 years, Egbeth, uh, and with, did he take it for granted when you said he just went with a sort of token troop expecting to walk it? Was that what happened? I suspect that is what happened. I suspect he was, he was overconfident. He probably also thought that Bride was ultimately his friend. He was his cousin. They'd worked together for over a decade. He probably thought, I've just got to read him the riot act. And I suspect it was hubris followed by nemesis. Big nemesis. He was killed. Most of his leading uh, nobles were killed. And then what did the Picts do in their moment of victory? Well, this is probably the time when Bride, who's, who's technically at the, this stage the king of Fortru, the northern Pictish kingdom based around the Murray Firth, around Inverness and, and so on, expands his power south into the southern Pictish areas, which would probably be more heavily under Northumbrian overlordship. So we're talking here about what you might think of as the the central eastern part of Scotland, the areas around the River Tay, Perth, Dundee, maybe Fife and so on. It's probably those areas that get taken over after that, and that's when you have a firm Pictish overlordship stretching, as Gordon said earlier, from Fife to Caithness. Gordon, you've been involved in a lot of the ex- recent excavations uh, uh, over the past few years, and bring forward enormous stuff. Can you tell us about those at uh, Port Mah- Port Mahomak. And what, what came out of that? It's near Inverness, uh, um, near, up, up there. What came out of that was surprising and is adding to the richness of your view of the pigs? Sure. Um, those weren't my excavations, but they were certainly inspirational to what I Oh, you're working at Reno, aren't you? The, yeah. Um, yeah. So this was uh, uh, Professor Martin Carver at the University of York working on the site um, at Port Mahomet. Uh, and it's basically the, the largest ever investigation of a monastic site of, of the Picts. 
So it's located in, uh, on the Tarbert Peninsula, up in Easter Ross, uh, north of Inverness. Um, prior to the excavations, there were some aerial photographs taken in the 1980s, showed a, a large um, enclosure around uh, the ch- uh, Church of St. Coleman. Um, and this uh, essentially is the monastic vallum, the, the, the ditch that marked the sacred space of, a, of an early church. Um, and excavations uh, by uh, Martin and his team from 1994 to 2007 uncovered an amazing wealth of evidence. So he found a roadway leading up to, to the church um, with huge amounts of metalworking uh, evidence, industrial activities around about uh, this, this roadway. Uh, they were producing metalwork for reliquaries and, and other, other metalwork. Um, and huge amounts of sculpture found as well. So there were about 19 pieces of sculpture prior to uh, Martin's excavation. But finding fragments of amazing cross slabs, uh, parts of shrines, corbels and finials from a stone church. Uh, so showing an incredibly wealthy um, monastic foundation uh, here at uh, Port Mahomet. And then um, some of the most exciting evidence doesn't sound that exciting. You know, it's uh, bone pegs um, that, that they found. And an amazing piece of detective work worked out that these are actually from uh, wooden frameworks um, to stretch uh, uh, calfskin to make vellum. So they were actually producing books at Port Mahomet. So, you know, there was uh, a lot of speculation about, you know, did the pics write, uh, did they have books? And I think, you know, the excavations Port Mahomet shows very clearly they did. They were perhaps producing illuminated manuscripts there. So fantastic evidence and just really shows you what archaeology can bring. Uh, you know, traditionally there's been very few sites we can associate with the pics, which seems very strange, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we've got these powerful kingdoms emerging. Actually, there's only you know a, f- a few dozen sites that we can identify apart from the sculpture, um, and you know, there's been very few large-scale excavations. So um, Martin's excavations uncovered this fantastically wealthy settlement, and it seems to have came to an end sometime in the ninth century. It looks like it was perhaps sacked by by the Vikings. And so it's, it's a whole new new world that's opened up with vellum. And I, I mix you up because your, your excavations are Ryan, and We're going to come to that in in a few minutes. Um, but the whole new idea of the Picts, instead of these hairy warriors, mm-hmm. we have people on a par with something not unlike Sutton Who, not on that scale yet, we never know, and so on. But that's what's going on. It, it's more normalising it within the British experience. What do you say, Catherine? Absolutely, but I think that these stereotypes that were established in the Roman period are remarkably enduring, and it's one of the things that draws people to the Picts. But if you just call them sort of arty Christian farmers, it doesn't have the same glamour. <laughs> but really, that's probably more more accurate. And I think the sculpture uh, Gordon mentioned. Yes, that. can you just give give our listeners a view of the sculpture? I've got some. But just... it's it, well, it's 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 one of the the, the great sort of treasures of. Of, of the Picts, and they're sort of, you know, some of the finest uh, contributions to European art culture in the period. Um, stone so, sculpture. Stone, stone sculpture is what survives. Yeah. Um, Monumental, um, big slabs. Can you just give us what's on them? What's on them? Well, in the, I can, we can maybe talk later about the symbols on the area. No, it's better once, just but... to get it over with now. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, from... Uh, people maybe be familiar with Irish high crosses and interlaced crosses from Northumbria. So so a similar kind of thing um, in Pictland. Um, But the Picts drew um, their crosses on slabs, which means that there are 
uh, rectangles in the corners to fill with other decoration. And so these are, you know, six, seven, eight foot tall, beautifully decorated with very, very intricate geometric patterns, interlaced patterns. Some of the most complex and uh, virtuoso displays of geometry are, are on Pictish stones, but also weird Which monsters. Which we usually think of as Celtic, don't we? Well, but it's, it's part of that same heritage. Yes. Well, interlace is something that comes from the Mediterranean, yeah but uh, is absorbed into the art of Britain and Ireland and taken in all kinds of amazing new directions. And, and the Picts are really sort of masters of that. But also um, there are weird monsters. They have a particular fascination with, with the hybrid creatures attacking humans, which are probably sort of quite sophisticated meditations on evil and death and Christian salvation and so on. We also have a lot of depictions of... Um, sort of apparently secular scenes. So Pictish men and women, which is very unusual in this period, um, in, in contemporary dress and on horseback and so on and so on. And there's a wonderful, wonderful realism, a beautiful salmon I can remember from one of the stones. Yes, well that's... And then from, great clunking bullocks. And, yes, uh, and well that's, so that's, from, that's from an earlier period. Yeah. Um, these are um, sculptures of the 6th and 7th century which are incised. And one of the things that, you know, I was sort of joking about the Articristian farmers and emphasising how similar the pits are to other peoples in Britain and Ireland and in Europe. But the, one of the things that is unique about them is this system, this graphic system that they invented of symbols which they carve on stones. Can I go across to Alex for that? Can you briefly tell us about the symbols? There are about three dozen. What are they and what do you make of them? Here. Well, yeah, as you say, there's about, about between 30 and 40 um, some of them are very naturalistic animal images, like the salmon you mentioned and the bulls, and there's also wolves and eagles. And many of the others are much more uh, geometric, and uh, quite a lot of time is wasted by people like us speculating on whether they might be an attempt to represent something from a funny angle. But they tend to appear. Well, they have quite a lot of them, and they're repeated. They're, in they are repeated. What are, what they're do repeated you think they stand almost for? always in pairs, yeah. uh, and never more than about four usually. Maybe a, there may be a few sculptures more than that, but usually it's one or two pairs on each sculpture. The most likely thing is that they're, they're, they're some sort of label, possibly a personal name, although not in any, it's not writing in any normal sense. But they seem to be, they recur across the whole range of picked land yeah. in this same very standardised format with very little variation. So they obviously are a system for communicating ideas. And, and they're some sort of label. And various people, including Catherine, have, have tried to decipher them. My own view is that unless we get some sort of Rosetta Stone text, we're not going to ever know exactly. But they're definitely being used to produce labels, quite probably names, uh, associated with things. Can I go to you, Gordon, again? <coughs> uh, Reiner, you've been digging away at Reiner, which is, I got it wrong, for, for several years now. What does that bring? You've told us what the... What does Rani bring to enrich this Pictish story? Sure. Um, well, Rani's uh, telling us about the, uh, the earlier period. Um, the, the site dates to the 4th to the 6th century. And it's got this uh, fantastic place name. Uh, Rani comes from this early Celtic word, re for king. Uh, so it means a place associated with, with a great, great king. Uh, so it's a, it's a fantastic clue, you know, in an area where we have very few historical documents. These place names are really important. And then the, the, the site was also known for eight of these Pictish symbol stones um, found from the 19th century onwards. Um, and includes uh, one stone still standing in its original place, the cross stain, which has a, a salmon and a Pictish beast on it, so that's pair of symbols. 
And, it, and, and in the 1970s, there was the discovery of the Rhiney Man, who's this fantastic, uh, almost full-length figure with big pointy teeth, and he's carrying this axe over his shoulder. And that was found just next to the cross stain. Uh, and then there was a series of aerial photographs that showed uh, enclosures. Was it a sacrificial axe? Well, yes, I think that's, uh, that's the most likely interpretation. So he's, he's likely to be some sort of pagan god, uh, you know, a symbol of sa- uh, sacral kingship. So our excavations uh, from 2011 uh, targeted the site of, of these symbol stones. And essentially what we've, we've shown is that uh, the stones stand within a high-status settlement of the 4th to the 6th centuries AD. And we've found, uh, you know, fantastic artifacts, um, amphora that's coming from the eastern Mediterranean, so picks drinking Mediterranean wine probably. Uh, we've got glass coming from western France, glass and metalwork coming from Ang- Anglo-Saxon England. Uh, and also objects, we're finding objects that you see on, on the stones. So, we're, you know, for example, we've got this little axe pin. It's only about, you know, five inches high. Um, and it's made out of iron, and it shows a little axe with a serpent biting onto it. So it's very much like the axe, the sacrificial axe that the Rhiney man holds. So the amazing thing about excavations like Port Mohammed and Rhiney is that we're finding objects that you can see depicted on the stones, and it really illuminates and, again, it's enriches our view of the pics. It gives a totally different view of the pics, doesn't it? Catherine, you wanted to come in. Well, I was just... In, in terms of the symbols, because they're something that is enduringly fascinating, yeah. but... Th- parallel with runes it's a, it's a kind yeah, of response the runes and the, yes yeah. it's a response of people beyond the empire to, to to roman literacy so another example of but a reflection of identity as well let's go towards i think let's go towards the end of the pic we're talking about 300 ad till mm. about 900 ad ish mm-hmm. that'll have to do that's all right that's, that's all right. right okay did the vikings have a part to play in the um demise departure of the picts well, certainly they have a, a very important role to play in the political changes that happen at the end of the Pictish Kingdom, but also to sort of linguistic changes that are happening. They're, they're, on the political front, there's a, a sustained series of, of military campaigns, major battles, the most important of which happens in 839, when the king of the Picts, his brother, and the king of the, of the Gales of Dalriada in Argyll are all killed, along with innumerable others. And this... Um, precipitates a, a major cultural, uh, sorry, political upheaval uh, in the kingship of the Picts. But the Vikings are also very important because we have very extensive Viking settlement in Pictland, the Northern Isles, Orkney, Shetland, Caithness, Sutherland, the Western Isles, um, the Western Coast. And so um, that uh, has, a, has a major impact on, uh, on the kingdom and also a kind of knock-on effect by increasing the extent of Gallic influence from the west into, into the east in Pictland. And this Gallicisation of Pictland is, is, is instrumental in understanding the disappearance of the Picts. Go on. Um, I think we can also track these changes through the archaeological record as well. So things like symbol stones and defended settlements really seem to um, come to the fore in, the, in this Pictish uh, period. So you get um, promontory forts emerging in the 3rd and 4th centuries, which match the, the, the you know, accounts of the emergence of the Picts in that, in that same late Roman period. And once we get to the, to the end of the first millennium AD, you can see that many of these forts are being uh, destroyed. So Burghead, for example, is the largest Pictish fort known in northern Scotland, and it seems to be sacked by the Vikings, and there's lots of um, uh, you know, Viking Age material culture beginning to be found through metal detecting around about that fort. 
uh, and also in excavations actually within the fort itself. So you can see that some of these key power centres in the north are being destroyed in this, uh, in this time period. We talk, we're talking about the disappearance of the, of the Pictish language, aren't we? <clears throat> Alex, now, there are invasions and invasions. When the Normans came, they tried to eliminate English, which they, they sort of did for 300 years, then it came back. So did the Vikings crush the Pictish language, or what, did the Pictish language go somewhere else? What happened? Well, I think different things happened to the Pictish language in different parts of the Pictish kingdom. Certainly in the, in the Northern Isles, in the, uh, most of the Hebrides, and in the far north of the mainland, by the time we get good historical documents in the 12th century, everyone seems to be speaking Norse. So Pictish language has been disappeared under Old Norse. What, the degree to which that was genocide or, or cultural mixing is unclear, probably a bit of both in different places. But in the bulk of the Pictish territories, as Catherine said, it's actually Gallic that replaces Pictish. Um, but we're far less certain about how that happens. And one of the differences in the two um, areas is that in the areas where Norse takes over, there are no remains of Pictish place names. No settlements have Pictish names. One or two of the islands probably have old names, but no settlement names. Whereas many of the settlement names of Gallic Scotland are inherited through Pictish. Uh, or from the Pictish times. So, for example, the easiest ones to spot are the ones that, have, that begin with the word Abba, which is the old British word for a river mouth, like you get in Aberystwyth in Wales, but you also get Aberdeen, Aberfeldy, Abernethy, and so on. These names have survived Gaelicisation, and that suggests there was much that, for part of that period, there was much more interaction, um, that there was much more continuity between the Pictish kingdom and the later kingdom of Scotland. That exp <clears throat> probably that explains all of it, but is there another reason why for almost a neat thousand years the pictures were forgotten from 900 to about 1900? Well, it, it's a kind of a rebranding in a way, this label of the Picts, which is only an external label. Yeah, but we, we why, why, why did nobody take any notice of them for a thousand years? Well, they did take notice of them. Who already, did? Well, already by the 11th century, people like Henry of Huntingdon, who've read Bede and said, oh, well, well the Picts, well, like, well, where are they? You know, but that's Norwich. mentioning them. Did they do anything about it? Well, they, they, they scratched their heads, thought, what's, oh, happened? what's right. happened to them? <laughs> and, you know, in the, we have the, from a very similar period, we have this Historia Norwegia, the history of the Norwegians, which is very archaeological, looks to Orkney and says, well, there's all these souterrains. Oh, this is where the Picts live. And we have these wonderful stories about the Picts, you know, coming out by night to build big towers and, and in the day you know, hiding in the... So they're, they're sort of wondering about them and speculating and this yeah. is where we get this, these myths about the Picts as little people you know hiding away in their in their underground dwellings you couldn't re well maybe i'm completely i'm happy to be completely <laughs> wrong because that's part of what i am on this program but they did seem there wasn't much going on with the Picts. was it from about nine am i wrong in that gordon Sorry, bye. There wasn't much scholarship about the Picts for that thousand years. Wasn't much. They became part of myths, and they were little people, and all the rest of it. But was anything really? Yeah, I mean, I I'm interested why there wasn't any interest. Well, I think there was some interest, as, as uh, Catherine says. You know, in the 16th century, for example, there's these fantastic etchings of of, uh, of the Picts by John White, uh, and he's um, uh, depicting the Picts as these incredible savages. And he's basically saying to the Elizabethan court, you know, we shouldn't be scared of, uh, you know, the Native Americans because in our past we've got even more savage <laughs> uh, communities. Um, but it's really the 19th century that, uh, you know, this interest in the Picts uh, re-emerges re and people begin to associate things like the symbol stones by the 1850s with 
with uh, a Pictish identity. So it's really the 19th and 20th century that you really get the, the modern scholarship beginning to emerge on, on the Picts. Do you have expectation that you will find writings from this? We've talked about vellum, that implies. Do you have expectation that you will find written records, that you will be able to decode? It's possible. Um, there are a number of reasons why we don't have it. One, the Pictish territory is much smaller than the other nations. Two, writing in vernacular languages was really only beginning to take off at about the time the Picts were disappearing. Um, and most of the books produced at places like Port Mahomet have probably been in Latin. We may have some of these books. There's a gospel book in Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, a St. John's Gospel book, which has an image of an eagle on it, which looks exactly like the eagles for the picture symbol thing. So that was probably a Latin gospel book made in a Pictish monastery. And maybe if we, if we examined that book and one or two other books like that uh, with image-enhancing uh, uh, technology, we might see little glosses in Pictish of a hard word explained or something. But... Um, I, I, think, I think we're unlikely to find texts in the Pictish language simply because so little survives. What survives from Wales and Ireland was largely stuff that was recopied at a later date because the original texts had, had worn out. But it's the archaeology, isn't it, Catherine, that's giving us so much information now? Intense, as, as Gordon has pointed out. Yes, but also, I mean, we've mentioned place name evidence a couple of times. There's a lot of these... I think one of the things that's very exciting about Pictish studies at the moment is interdisciplinarity, so taking together evidence from different sources and putting it together. Um, in the absence of historical information, we can squeeze out more understanding from these different sources. So archaeology has a very important art history but also other things like saints' cults as well, which allow us to reconstruct political alliances and things like that. And so they've emerged, Gordon, finally they've emerged much stronger than they were thought to be 50 years ago or so. I think so. I think the interest in the picks has is, is, is always been there, but I think uh, the scholarship is really beginning to help illuminate uh, this uh, fantastic period of, of Scottish uh, history, really, and they are really iconic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gordon Noble, Alex Wolfe, and Catherine Forsyth, and our student audience here at the University of Glasgow, who are about to ask questions, which you can hear later in our podcast and on our website. Next week, we'll be discussing Germaine de Staal, the great French woman of letters. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Okay, now, usually at the end of the programme, we do the podcast, which goes, adds to the programme, goes out all over the world, frankly. And I start by asking, what did I miss out? But I'm not doing it this time. You've got a couple of mics. Got, this place is full, so can we have questions from you? Anybody <coughs> like to start? Put up a hand and a mic will rush to you. Okay, uh, thank you. It was a really fascinating uh, insight into the picks. Uh, what came out to me that a lot of uh, as we learned about the picks has really come to the fore in the last couple of uh, decades. So I'm wondering from the audience, where do you see the, the uh, investigation at the picks going? Is there, a, is there a certain direction or certain sites that are possibly going to unlock more about them in the future? Do you like to answer that, Gordon? Can you, can you keep your hands up? Then the, the people with the microphone know who to come to. Gordon, you like to answer that? Um, well, I think, obviously, as, as Kate says, interdisciplinary studies is a massively rich theme which we need to explore further. From my perspective, you know, the archaeology is, is really limitless in terms of what we could do. Uh, there are so many other sites that we can investigate, and I think 
uh, Martin Carver's excavations in Port Mahomet Car or work at places like Rhiney really shows that what uh, an ambitious form of fieldwork can do in terms of uncovering uh, sites uh, of, of pickland. Um, we, we are working on a project called Northern Picks, um, and we are continuing to investigate other sites like Burghead. We're working on, on that now as well. Um, so hopefully there will be a lot more to come in, in, in coming years in terms of the archaeology and also the wider, wider discipline as well. Okay, over there. Hi, there are um, two people at the front here. When you're right, you're over there. Um, it used, um, my understanding is it used to be thought that Argyll was originally a pick territory and then it was colonised by the Gales coming in. But I've kind of read that that's not really accepted as much anymore, or, the, or there's some debate. I just wanted your opinion on it. You're right, there has been some debate. I mean, the, the traditional view is the one that comes from Bede's origin legend that Gordon told us about earlier, that there's a migration uh, from Ireland uh, in the early 6th century. Uh, this has been questioned largely by, uh, initially by Ewan Campbell, a Glasgow archaeologist, and it's partly on the basis that, unlike eastern Scotland, there's no suggestion of pre-Gallic place names. Uh, there's no sort of hints of the earlier culture. I think, though, this is an area that's still uh, fairly complex because some of Campbell's argument was based on the absence of stereotypically Irish archaeological features, which, in fact, some of them emerged a bit later. Some of them were never that common in the north of Ireland. I suspect we should probably simply see the narrow seas between uh, western Scotland and the northeast of Ireland as always being an area where people are going back and forth. And going much further back into prehistory, you see connections between these regions. So there's an article in the news that came out recently about a new stone that was uncovered in Perth in Kenross, and uh, I know it's got a, a naked man holding a spear on it, and I was hoping you might be able to maybe forecast a little bit about why that find is exciting, and I wonder also if there might be any kind of connection with the, the man and the stone from, from your excavations, Gordon. Well, that, 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 that's one of the exciting things about Pictish uh, studies is that they keep finding new stones. Uh, almost every year we find a new stone, and the one that you're describing is very interesting because it has on it a figure which is very similar to other examples elsewhere in Pictland, including one at Rhiney. Um, Gordon described the figure with the axe, who's clothed, but there's also another stone at Rhiney depicting a naked warrior very similar to this one. And this is interesting because it shows links over a wide area just as the symbols do, um, a, a sort of common cultural area. So um, the, the one that, you, that you're describing is also very interesting because the, he's carrying a spear that has in the, at the bottom of it a, a, a boss, a, a sort of knob butt at the bottom, and that is exactly as is described by the Roman uh, writers, Amiens Marcellinus, who describes the Caledonians as having this spear. So it's a nice kind of link back to that Roman period as well. Um, my question for the speakers is about the end of the Pictish period, and um, the term sort of rebranding was, was used in, in the discussions. And so I'm, I would like to know more about, hear more about what happened in around you know AD 900 when the term Pict stops being used, and and what that means if they, you know, was there a disappearance or just a change, etc. Well, it, it's it's a change. Um, obviously, they disappear at some point, but we don't know whether the change of the label is the point at which culture changed. Almost certainly not. The first people who are called kings of Oliver, the successor kingdom, or called kings of Scots by the English, are actually the grandchildren of the last people to be called 
kings of the, in fact, the children, the sons are the last people to be called kings of the Picts. So Constantine Macetha, the first person to be called king of the Scots in English sources, is the son of Aeth, son of Kenneth MacAlpin, the last person to be called king of the Picts. So the dynasty is clearly the same. Um, it's rather puzzling that both in English sources and in Irish sources the word Pict stops being used. But in Irish sources, one reason for that is that the main chronicles switch from being written in Latin to being written in Gaelic. And so, since picked is a Latin word, it may simply, to some extent, be the fact that people are writing in the vernacular. And picked has always been a rather learned, external-generated name. So it may be that nothing particularly stunning happened around about 900, but there's a long-term cultural trajectory that's in play at that point. Over there. Um, so if there's not much credence given to the origin myth of coming from Cynthia, um, along with the Scots, is there any idea of where the picks might have been pre-Britain? You want to talk? You want to, Catherine? Well, I, I think this, this old notion of the Pict as being a people who came from somewhere is, is misleading because it's not a people, it's an identity. And so in a way, Pict is a sort of ethno-linguistic label, but it's also in a way a chronological label like the Victorians. You wouldn't say, where did the Victorians come from? It's just at a certain point you start using it, that label, and at a certain point you stop using that label. So the Picts are the Britons, the Northern Britons, and at a certain point it's appropriate to call them Picts, and at a certain point it stops being appropriate to call them Picts. So they, don't, they were always there, and they're still there in terms of genetics, their descendants are there. And many of the aspects of medieval Scotland, whether it's parish structure or politics or other things like that, have their roots very deeply in the Pictish period, but they've just been rebranded, as we, as we said. You said genetics, that's interesting. What, do you know, what does that give you, genetics? As, as, a, as a Pictish line in gen- Gordon? Um, well, we don't really know enough about genetics. There has been some work. We've been involved in some uh, genetic work, which basically so shows that the very few individuals that we've looked at so far are essentially the same genetic signature as you would find in Iron Age Scotland and, and Britain. So, as Kate says, it, you know, it's the same people, but they're adopting a new term uh, for uh, their, their identity. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the genetic evidence com- uh, sh- comes to show in, in, in the coming decades. But, of course, you know, genetics is not the same as you know, identity. I just wanted to go back to something Catherine was saying at the start of the programme about how the Romans um, gave them the name Picts, meaning painted or tattooed. Um, I just wondered why the Romans chose that as a way to define them and also what this signified to the Picts themselves. Um, sorry, second well, I, I think tattooing is it's interesting. It's sort of older studies of the Picts were, uh, were sort of always wanted to, to, to diminish tattoos because in the 1960s and 1970s it was a bit disreputable. But now everybody's got a tattoo and so people are much more comfortable with the notion of the Picts being tattooed. But I think the thing about tattooing, along with going to war in chariots and various other things, these are cultural attributes that used to be that lots of barbarians did that. But over time, the Picts are the ones who are left still doing it. And that's one of the reasons why um, uh, this, is, this is highlighted. So I, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the notion of them being, ta- being tattooed, but it's something that was once a much more widespread practice, but they are the ones who are still doing it because they're less Romanized than other people. It's a really simple question, but what do we know about their uh, daily life um, and the social structure and political structure? Um, 
Not enough is the uh, short answer. Um, really, there's been so few excavations. Um, you know, we can count the number of animal bone assemblages we have on one hand, for example. But again, it's beginning to, to get better. So um, our excavations um, at Rhiney and places like Port, Port Mahomet is beginning to put together evidence for uh, you know, the everyday agricultural life cycles that uh, these people were, were, were following. But again, we can definitely increase that information through, through more excavation, more look at uh, comparative material uh, from Ireland and, and the like. So really, hopefully, again, we're setting the scene for uh, the next few decades of, of, of work. But one of the things that uh, I just mentioned is that the, the, the scenes on the, on the sculpture often depict ordinary pits or elite pits. Um, and so we know a lot about Pictish hairstyles and Pictish shoes and um, horse gear and things like that. So we have a very vivid picture of everyday life from the sculpture, which is very appealing. Um, following the idea of this very, very successful excavation that, were, uh, that happened the last few years with Port Mahomak and, and uh, Rainy and also in Iona uh, this year, um, we think about the southeast uh, area like Angus and, and Persia. If there were like big excavation to happen in this area now, where would that be for you uh, and what could we uh, expect? Well, the, there is a major excavation that's just started this summer at Dunkeld, at the King's Seat, which is probably the major royal centre of the Caledones, and it's already turned up material uh, that looks like they're doing high-status metalworking from the 7th to 8th centuries, going into the, maybe the 9th century. They've only had one season, but they've got money for at least three more, and from straight away, as soon as they opened the earth, they were finding stuff. Uh, so that's going to change everything because that area, which is the area that Bede says is the centre of the southern Picts, in the, in the southern side of those same mountains, he says, is clearly a very important area and there's a lot of stones not too far away in the sort of 15-mile radius around Dunkeld, some of the best uh, of the symbol stones. So that will do, do something for us. We really need to look at some of the major church sites where we have sculpture, places like Meagle and St. Vigens, but where we've no idea what the buildings and things are like. And we might imagine material like was found at Port Mahomet might be found there. So I would encourage archaeologists to try and find ways of excavating adjacent to places where we have big collections of the Christian stone sculpture. I wanted to ask about the stone sculptures as well. I wanted to ask with the patterns, are, are they primarily religious artefacts or are they artistic expressions? It's not either or, it's both. I mean, the, the production of these, of, of these is, a, is a religious act in and of itself and seeing them is a religious act um, so that, they're, they're, yeah. that, that those are not exclusive. Uh, Although term. we should probably emphasise that the symbols are found both on certainly Christian monuments and on some monuments that are early enough to possibly be not Christian. Mm. Um, so, Pre-Christian. so it's clearly not explicitly pagan or explicitly Christian. There's something different, as Catherine mm. says. There's some cultural identity that isn't directly linked to religion. Um, what relationship did the Picts have with those in the rest of Scotland? You want to take that, Gordon? Um, well, I mean, there's shared kingship between uh, Dalriada and Pickland at various points uh, in, in the 8th century um, and uh, 9th centuries, uh, for example. Um, we're seeing very clear connections with uh, the artistic motifs found on sculpture and metalwork uh, across Western and, and Eastern Scotland. So clearly you've got uh, important links between uh, the West and the East throughout uh, the Pictish period. And likewise, now we're increasingly identifying 
links with you know Anglo-Saxon England and 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 beyond with you know our, our import material from Mediterranean and Western France and the like. So uh, all these areas are open to wide international uh, connections and and uh, inspirations really. Yes, yeah, Bede tells us that. Um the Pictishing Knighton in the early 8th century wrote to Bede's own monastery asking for architects and stonemasons to be sent up so he could build a modern-style stone church. And that's probably the kind of interaction that there was a lot more of that we just don't hear about. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, thank you very much indeed. This was an experiment, and it's been amazingly painless. Um, <laughs> and thanks to the three scholars who joined us, Gordon Noble, Catherine Forsyth, and Alex Wolfe. Thank you to the University of Glasgow, and that's it. Hello, I'm Neil McGregor, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my new 30-part series about faith and society. For the whole of human history, believing and belonging have gone together. And in this series, I'm looking at objects and places to see how those shared beliefs have helped to build communities and also to divide them. It's called Living with the Gods, but it's just as much about how we live with each other. You can download the programmes from the Radio 4 website or on the iPlayer radio app. And there's also a free podcast to which you can subscribe. Search online for Living with the Gods.